And uh, we, are, we are going through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter. And um, coming up over the next several weeks, we have sermons on spiritual warfare, slavery, parenting, roles in marriage, and today, sex. So buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be awesome. Um, remembering that right now, Paul is talking about new life in Christ, in community, and what that looks like. And he won't shy away from talking about matters of sex, nor should we. And so this is the passage before us. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word, all of it, and we know that you have given it to us for our good, and we also know that we need your help, we need your spirit to hear and believe and apply this to our lives, that it might bear fruit uh, to your glory and to the blessing of others around us. Uh, So please do that among us now in our hearing and listening. Please be with us and use this to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was around seven... In uh, 1984, we got cable TV, and it was this amazing new thing, cable, and we could watch sports games in other cities, and we had ESPN and a, a few other channels. And back then, cable came into your house through a box that you put on the top of your TV, and that's how you switched channels. Uh, and, and it was so early that actually the box didn't even have a remote control. You had to get up and you know, physically change the channel uh, for the cable TV. And also on that box was a tuner. Now, I'm not sure why, but many early cable boxes had tuners on them. And our tuner was so good that you can tune in any station you wanted. Uh, Channels would go from a very scrambled picture to a clear picture, which meant you could get channels you didn't pay for. So we got free HBO and free Showtime. And when my parents went out, leaving me and my older brother home alone, we could get Playboy. I was my girl's age and younger, and we would spend hours Saturday night 
watching the Playboy channel. I'm sure you can imagine how that kind of early exposure might have impacted me. Sex, sexuality, sexual sin can be a source of shame, frustration, exhaustion, discouragement, distraction. It can wreak havoc in our lives. And this isn't only a Christian dilemma. I became a Christian at 16, and I knew sexual sin and shame well before that. Almost every human being struggles with this in some way. And like my story I just told shows, it's complicated for everyone. My experience might resonate with you, but I know many of you have far more painful stories. Stories that can include abuse or assault. Regardless of our particular story, sin has damaged everything. Which means in some way or another, all of us sometimes misuse sex or have an unhealthy relationship with our bodies or our sexuality or a distorted view of others' bodies. And that's what Paul is talking about here. His initial readers had become followers of Jesus, which meant they were new creations, a new humanity loved eternally by God. He unpacked that in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And that in turn meant that they could now live new lives in every facet of life, including sexually. And as much then as now, sexual habits and appetites seem to be the last things we can change. So what would it look like for you to experience new life in this area? Less shame and isolation, more self-control, a positive and life-giving view of sexual intimacy. Here in this passage, we begin to see the way forward, and we'll go through it by contrasting aspects of real biblical sexuality with their counterfeits. Now, I want to make a disclaimer up front. What we're not going to do today is oversimplify or get too narrow. Some might think that this sermon is aimed primarily at men, or young men in particular, but that feeds an untrue and unhelpful stereotype about men and women and how they relate to sex, that men can't get enough, and that it's women's job to police and resist that male appetite. Others might want the sermon to focus on questions around same-sex attraction and gay marriage, And we're on record about what we teach, that we affirm the orthodox biblical picture of marriage. We've discussed it before, and we will discuss it again. This passage is more basic than that. And we're not going to talk so much about firm lines of what you can and cannot do outwardly. We're going to talk about heart positions and attitudes. Sexual immorality is a struggle that cuts across humanity, not just one or two segments. These words are for everyone, whether old or young, male or female, attracted to same sex or opposite sex, married or single. If we oversimplify and focus on one or two issues, we leave the bulk of our people to figure this out for themselves. And we fail to teach and pursue a beautiful biblical sexual ethic. The culture sees that failure of inconsistency and hypocrisy and easily tunes out what the church is saying. So don't you tune out by pulling out your culture war checklist and scoring accordingly for whatever side you might be on. These words are not for those people out there. These words are for you, and they're for me. So let's begin this way. Sexual ethic, a biblical sexual ethic starts with self-giving love, 
not self-serving objectification. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It is indisputable the foundation of Christian living is love, love for God and love for neighbor. And that means walking in love, like Paul says here, the way Jesus loved us, sacrificially, giving himself away to give us life. This is the heart of love. Not to serve yourself, but to give of yourself. And this is the heart of God, self-giving love. And it's the kind of love that needs to be at the core of everything in our lives, including our sexuality. Biblical, true sexuality is based in self-giving love. Giving yourself up for the sake of the other. Affirming their value and humanity. And that's the opposite of what Paul calls here sexual immorality. Verses 3 and 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul uses three terms, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now these are three very broad terms. They're not highly specific But by Paul's time, in Jewish and Christian circles, these terms meant any sexual activity outside of, including before, marriage. No sexual activity outside of or before marriage. Now, this sounds crazy to the majority of people in our culture. It seems so out of touch with the relational, cultural, and biological realities we're all aware of. And so we're tempted to write this off as some form of ancient conservative culture. Of course, these words are out of date and out of touch. Not so. Times have changed, and we are far pruder and more conservative than the first century was. Uh, For instance, most can agree that adultery is wrong because it's breaking a promise and likely hurting someone else, the, the spouse. But in the first century, adultery was much more loosely defined. And there's, of course, a double standard uh, between men and women. Greco-Roman men of middle and upper classes were allowed to, and even expected to, have sex with all kinds of people. Lower status adolescent boys, lower status men and women, prostitutes, and their personal slaves. We cannot fathom how sexualized this culture was. Sex acts depicted on walls, murals, pottery, household furniture, lamps in almost every Roman house in the shape of male genitalia, statues and carvings of male genitalia everywhere in public spaces, lewd songs, lewd literature, lewd public religious rites, worse, brothels on nearly every corner, no doors or windows for privacy. Prostitute numbers were so high that sex cost as little as a loaf of bread. The red light district in Amsterdam is downright Victorian in comparison. Household slaves were incredibly common. They were free game. There were no laws protecting them, and they had to be sexually available for their owners. And worse than that, prostitutes themselves were also usually slaves. They weren't sex workers. They were sex slaves everywhere. Human sex trafficking was a booming business. And no other group besides Christians consistently said, this is wrong. It's not right. 
Now again, I'm making this real clear because some people want to read the Bible's discussion of sexuality as being hopelessly out of date and out of touch. Paul writes what sounds like absurdly stringent commands about sex to a far more sexualized and libertine culture than ours. What the Bible says about sex is far crazier to a first century person than a 21st century person, which means we should listen up. And this ancient culture of slavery and sexual exploitation came from the same place, objectifying the human being. Turn someone into an object for work or an object for sex, and you deny their humanity. This is why Jesus rebukes even good Jews for their views about sex. Jews of this time rejected any sex outside of marriage, and that made them feel sexually pure. But Jesus says in Matthew 5 that even looking lustfully at another constitutes adultery. Because the issue isn't simply who you touch and who you do not touch. It's about loving other people. And you aren't loving other people when you objectify them, even in your thoughts. When you look at them with lust. And another word for lust is coveting. And that's the word Paul uses here. And he equates it with idolatry. Coveting, lusting. It distorts creation like idolatry. God made us male and female in his image. In varied and mysterious ways, our bodies reflect and speak of God. That's how special and valuable our unique and individual bodies are. Even more, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on flesh, our flesh. The fullness of deity living in a body as a human being. Biblical sexuality honors the body. It affirms its beauty and value. It's not about denigrating the body or making it meaningless or worthless or bad. That's what coveting and lust does. It reduces someone's humanity, turning them into an object to be preyed upon and consumed. Thoughts and actions motivated by lust distort God's image and therefore are attacks on God, like idolatry is. And so much of our sexuality, just like in the first century, is rooted in lust and an appetite to consume and take and not give away and love. And it's not just thoughts and actions, it's our words as well. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Our words can objectify and distort our bodies and sexuality. We can so easily mock it and make light of it. Recently, it's been euphemistically labeled as locker room talk. And maybe our culture tolerates it in our leaders, but we will not tolerate it in our, in our church community because we want everyone to experience dignity here. We want everyone to feel safe. We want no one to feel that their humanity is reduced to an object. Paul isn't saying that sex is a taboo topic. We shouldn't talk about it because it's dirty. On the contrary, we don't joke about sex and make light of it, so it's safe to talk about. Sex is so good and beautiful and important, we need to talk about it. But locker room talk shuts down healthy thinking and discussion about sex and our bodies. So we won't tolerate it as a community. So we spend a lot of time, more time, on sexual immorality than on biblical sexuality. But by seeing what's wrong, we can discover what is right. True sexuality, as God intended, must be about honoring the other person, seeing them as God's image bearers, 
even when they don't see that about themselves. If people communicate through their dress or words or actions that they want to be objectified and consumed, that's sad and that's their business. But it's your business how you respond. It's no one's fault but yours if you objectify someone and pursue sexual immorality with them in thought or deed because of how they're dressed or how much they've had to drink. It doesn't matter. Love means showing dignity and honor to the other. And real sex must as well. Giving yourself away for the sake of the other person, just like Jesus, who gave up his body to save us, body and soul. It can't be about devaluing, distorting, and taking. And that's so much of our sexuality. Whether it's pornography, or the hookup culture, or prostitution, or moments of indiscretion and weakness. And that's how many of us feel who want to have a healthy sexuality. We feel weak. But biblical sexuality comes out of the abundance we actually have, not the lack. Out of abundance, not lack. Look again at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Instead of coarse language and lewd joking, Paul calls Christians to offer thanksgiving. And part of this goes back to what we said a few weeks ago about language, that our words are not neutral. So if we're going to talk, use speech to build up. But it actually goes deeper than that. Thanksgiving is one of the key ways you can begin to transform your sexuality from self-focused and objectifying to other-focused and loving. Let's say you find yourself in a moment of temptation. You're lonely, bored, feel bad about yourself. For whatever reason, this wave of desire comes over you. And before moving towards sexual immorality in whatever form, can you stop and give thanks for who God is and what he's given you? Can you give thanks that Jesus has died for you and that his spirit dwells in you now and is even praying for you and fighting sin in you? Thanksgiving recenters us on the truth because so much of sexual immorality is based in lies. Like this big lie, appetites are made to be satisfied. And if God won't provide the right outlet for me, I'll have to find one myself. God isn't coming through, God isn't showing up, so that gives me a free pass to do what I need to do. Now this lie is at least as common in marriage as it is in singleness. And what it's saying is, God is stingy. He doesn't know how I'm made, and he doesn't know what my needs are. And actually, I'm sorry to use a Lord of the Rings illustration. It reminds me of the character Smeagol Gollum, right? Smeagol has this alter ego, Gollum, and he finds himself with Frodo, who he calls his master. Frodo's trying to destroy the ring. And, and Smeagol is the original identity of this person. Gollum is his twisted identity due to the ring's influence. And the, he's having this fight with himself. Gollum argues with Smeagol. And he attacks his master, Frodo. Right? Gollum says, they stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbits is wicked, tricksy, false. Smeagol says, no, not master. Yes, they will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. You're a liar and a thief. No, murderer. Go away. Master looks after us now. We don't need you. Of course, things happen. There's misunderstanding. Smeagol finds himself tied up by Faramir. It's a long story. 
He doesn't understand, and he's crying. Smeagol cries, Master, Master looks after us. Master wouldn't hurt us. And Gollum says, Master broke his promise. Master betrayed us. Wicked, tricksy, false. And Gollum then convinces Smeagol to betray his master, Frodo. See, we all have that ugly Gollum voice in us, particularly around this issue. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. You're a loser anyway, and you have to fend for yourself. And in Thanksgiving, you remember that God is a kind master and creator. He made you for himself to have everlasting joy with him. You have everything you need in him. Real sex is about finding joyful pleasure and pouring yourself out in love to be unified with your spouse, bringing them joyful pleasure in return. It comes from a place of fullness and abundance, just like the way Jesus loved us. Approaching sex or sexual intimacy from a lack and neediness rather than abundance is like being starved for food and then going to the French Laundry for dinner. French Laundry, probably the best restaurant in the United States up in Napa. Imagine going there not having eaten for a week. Would you get the most out of it? Right? You would get calories, but you would have no idea you were eating the best food in America. It would be wasted on you, and you would likely offend everyone there. That's what it's like to approach sex as merely satisfying and unstoppable appetite. In our hunger, we objectify and consume people. We prey on them. And one of the ways of fighting that is by realizing our abundance through thanksgiving. This needs to be practiced, which is why I love and heartily recommend to you fasting. Because in fasting, I learn that I am not a slave to my appetites. I don't serve them, they serve me. And after 30 hours of fasting from food, Food is put in front of me, and I don't devour it like a starving person. I've just experienced and learned about and realized how good God is and how he takes care of me no matter what. There have been times when food is put in front of me after 30 hours, and I could take it or leave it. doesn't matter. Now, this is more serious than food. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is incredibly strong language. Some find very offensive. God has wrath. Wrath for these people. Look, if you go through life devouring people, dehumanizing and objectifying them without any movement towards repentance, the kingdom of God probably isn't for you. One preacher I respect put it like this, if we live as consumers, we are in the end consumed. Now a key phrase phrase there is live as. Because anyone reading these verses could easily become concerned. Because all of us probably qualify as sexual sinners and impure. So the lie we're then told is, it's too late for you. You'll never change. You'll never be different. You're doomed. Fight that with thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus, you paid for my continual stumbling. Thank you that I'm a new creation. 
Thank you that I can and will be changed. Thank you that it's never too late. You might fight this battle your whole life and continue to experience defeat along the way. But the fact that there's a fight should give you hope. It means God is fighting for you. His spirit is in you. And he has won on the cross. Do not be deceived. Fight sexual temptation and immorality from a place of hope and thanksgiving. Not fatalism. Really fighting means rejecting this other big lie. You got to keep this struggle hidden. If others know about this, they will reject you and judge you. No one can forgive this. Biblical sexuality is pursued in truth, not darkness. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is a call to live out all of our lives in the light of truth, the light of the gospel. And we can do that because the gospel is literally good news for sinners. Jesus has gone to the depths of hell to pay for our sin so we can expose our darkness, our works of darkness, to the light of the gospel. We can confess, we ask for forgiveness, and by bringing things into the light, it's harder to operate in the dark. And that catalyzes change. Look at verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, these are complicated verses that commentators puzzle over, but the general thrust is obvious. Exposing these things to the light of the gospel changes them. In the dark, they have power over you. They keep you locked in shame and defeat. But bringing them into the light before King Jesus, in view of his victory on the cross, even in your weakness, you can say to that sin, you are defeated, I am forgiven, your days are numbered. It's the same principle as helping a child afraid of a monster under their bed or in the closet. Turn on the lights. Turning on the lights also means sharing this with faithful brothers or sisters. And if you're so afraid you can't tell a single person, this still has power over you in a terrible way. I still remember the moment in the fall of 1995 in my dorm room, sophomore. We had this new thing called Ethernet, and there was this internet connection. The World Wide Web had just become a thing, and now there was a way to quote-unquote surf it on this thing called Netscape. And I remember being on there and having an epiphany. I bet there are pictures of women on here somewhere. And that started some really bad habits that followed me here to California when I came out to be a high school teacher at the King's Academy. And I was struggling with this, and I finally mustered up the courage and nerve to tell my boss and principal uh, of the King's Academy about my struggles and failures. And I walked into his office not knowing if I would be fired or shamed or what. And he became a father in the faith to me. First, he shared some of his own struggles in a different realm so that I didn't feel alone. And then he said, Bob, 
Christians are known for shooting their wounded. And that's not going to happen here. And we ended up meeting in his office during the school day every week until I ultimately left to go back to St. Louis. There was honesty, accountability, prayer, tears. And it was the beginning of change for me. And the battle continues. I still need accountability software on every internet device within my reach. And even that's not enough. Both uh, Ryan and Steven have parental codes uh, to my phone. Why two people? Because Ryan forgets the code all the time. It's unbelievable. My phone almost became a brick. The point is, we need brothers and sisters to fight this with us. How do we live new lives? Together. We don't shoot our wounded. We restore them in the hope of the gospel. That's why in the past we've created sexual wholeness groups where three or four people of the same gender regularly gather together to share and pray and encourage each other. In the past we've called them men's sexual wholeness. I'm sure women could use this option as well. I'd love to form more groups. The first step would be joining, would be emailing me if you want to join one, and I'll send more information about it soon. If you don't want to join a group, please at least speak with someone, a pastor or an elder, or I can connect you with a godly woman in our congregation. This kind of exposure can be incredibly frightening to be known, transparent, vulnerable. And it's another key component of biblical sexuality. Real sex is about honesty, vulnerability, being known. It's scary. The kind of trust you have to put in your spouse, which is one reason God restricts sexual intimacy to biblical marriage. You can build this kind of trust and vulnerability only over years with someone who has promised never to leave you or forsake you, no matter what. And verse 14 also ends with a promise. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The more you come out of the darkness, the more of Jesus you get. And that's my concluding point. All of this, sex included, is unto God, not ourselves. Just this brief description of healthy sexuality and biblical marriage, that it's self-giving and honoring, that it flows from joyful abundance and is rooted in honest vulnerability, it's a tall order. Even for the most mature marriages, it takes practice, commitment, and communication, and there's plenty of frustration experienced and a lot of forgiveness needed along the way. And some people who are unhappy in their marriages. They might be thinking, well, I just got on the wrong boat. I'm stuck here. Or worse, maybe they're trying to figure out how they can get off the boat. And others here who are single and don't want to be single are wondering, when will it be my turn? And what we have to recognize is that sex is not an end in itself and marriage is not an end in itself. The end, the point of everything is communion with the triune God. As Paul says earlier in Ephesians, all things are being united, all things summed up in Christ. And one of the key ways the Bible communicates that is this picture of marriage. Many of you have heard before that the Bible begins in a garden in Genesis and ends in the city in Revelation, right? It shows some structure and direction to the story from garden to city. But what I only recently learned and realized is that the Bible begins with a marriage in Genesis and it ends with a marriage 
in Revelation. Adam and Eve in Genesis, Jesus and his bride, the church, in Revelation. Real sex in marriage, the self-giving, joyfully abundant, honestly, vulnerably committed kind, it's a precursor in taste of the physical, emotional, and spiritual union we will have with Jesus when he returns. Therefore, marriage and sex are categories to help us understand and join in what God is doing in history. And so is singleness and abstinence. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Part of Jesus giving himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice was living a chaste, celibate life. Why? Jesus remained chaste to win and perfect his future bride, us. He is the perfect bridegroom who will do what it takes to win us. Therefore, there is purpose and meaning in your chastity and celibacy. As you walk in love, resisting sexual immorality, you walk with Jesus who knows exactly what it's like. And you find a union and companionship with Jesus, getting a special foretaste of what it will be like when he returns. You're almost going into the future. And someone committed to their spouse in marriage also will learn that they need Jesus this way. Because marriage is not an outlet for your physical needs. It's about loving and serving one person uniquely, meaning spouses will have to practice self-control and sacrifice. So paradoxically, married people also need celibate Jesus. And single people already get bridegroom Jesus. Now, maybe this sounds too heady and over-spiritualized. You might simply want a method for getting through your day or week without feeling bad about yourself. But you read through the Bible, and you realize that this keeps coming up over and over again. There are whole books written about marriage, sex, and procreation. Books like Ruth, books like Song of Songs, or books like the one we just went through this fall, Hosea. God uses a whole book one of the longer prophetic books to develop this theme of a faithful husband winning back a wayward wife. And you know the story. Hosea the prophet marries Gomer, who will become unfaithful, bearing other men's children. And eventually she leaves and becomes a prostitute. And Hosea goes and buys her back from whoever and promises to restore her and make her his again. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I told this story over five years ago, how when I was in front of our presbytery, All the pastors in the region are there, and they got to test me on the floor on my knowledge of the Bible. Any question they wanted to ask me, I had to be able to answer. And one of the questions was, what's your favorite Old Testament book and why? And immediately I said, Hosea, because I'm no better than a prostitute. And the guy who asked nodded his head like, "Mm mm-hmm. But we had some guests of Presbytery there, an elderly couple, and they, they're they didn't hear me. They said, what, what did he say? I said, I'm no better than a prostitute. And she says, did he say prostitute? I'm no better than a prostitute. And everyone is laughing at Presbytery because I had to shout that I'm no better than a prostitute. And if this, sub- if this subject makes you feel no better than a prostitute, then hear what God says to a wayward people through Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God is a faithful husband who wins back a faithless bride, purchasing her through the blood of Jesus, making her new, pure, spotless, and blameless. That's what God, through Jesus, is doing in every aspect of your life, including your sexuality. So that married or single, out of love, you can give yourself away from abundance in truth unto God. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for this word, and uh, we recognize um, how challenging it is or can be, and we ask that um, you would use your scripture to work in our hearts and to change us, and um, that if I said anything uh, unkind or improper, that we would forget that and hear only the truth from you. Um, We want to live new lives in Jesus Christ. And we want to honor you in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our bodies, in our relationships. And we want to experience freedom and joy in Jesus. Please give us that. We're grateful that this is what you promised to do and this is what you are doing and this is what will happen when Jesus returns. Help us to wait and watch for him faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.